Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. know you've seen and heard a lot already this morning. Maybe uh, you've reached your limit of being able to sit still in a chair. But I'm going to ask you to just kind of shake out your shoulders. Get ready because we got to talk about sex this morning. Well, you got to listen. I got to talk about it. And we have our whole youth group right here. So got a bit of a challenge because I want this to be relevant and appropriate for everyone. But I want to talk about the truth without holding back um, because we're squeamish. And we'll see if, by the grace of God, we'll succeed in doing that. Um, there's a side of me that I think a few years ago would have been worried about speaking too openly in front of younger people, but then I, you know, I chaperoned my kid's sixth grade camping trip, and I realized that ship done sailed. Our kids could teach us things we don't know. Um, so I, I'm not as worried that suddenly you're going to hear something that is going to shock you. Um, this world shocks me every day, all day. What I see on network television shocks me. So I want to talk about sexual purity this morning. Uh, if you're not familiar with the series we're on, I've been working my way through a series on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and I've chosen to call the series Radical. When you think about the word radical, we usually interpret the word radical to mean something like intense or um, really extreme, uh, out there on the edge. But really, the word, root of the word radical is about roots. It's about the foundation or the essence of a thing, the fundamental nature of a thing. So when you hear the word radical, don't think so much about Red Bull. Think more like a radish because that's, in fact, the same root. A radish is just a giant root which we pull out of the ground and eat. Some of us eat. And uh, a radish really gives us that picture of what the word radical means. What's at the heart of what a thing is? That is what is radical. That's why when we say a radical change, what we mean is not a surface change, but a change at the very elemental level, right? A, a change might be painting the wall. A radical change will be tearing down the walls and rebuilding a larger room. That's an essential change. So the reason we're calling this series Radical is because in this sermon, Jesus is doing something intense he is doing something spectacular, but he's doing it by laying a whole new foundation on top of something people thought they understood. See, he was addressing a group of people who for, for centuries believed that they knew who God was and what he wanted from us. And Jesus was laying out in this one sermon a picture of the kingdom of God that was fundamentally, radically different than what they thought. And he was describing at the most basic level what kind of people God is trying to raise up as he sends his son Jesus to redeem, to forgive, to save and rescue a whole new group of people out of the earth. And what is it exactly he's trying to do with these people? And the truth he lays out is that it's not a club and it's not just a community, but it's a kingdom. 
And what that means is that every aspect, every issue addressed in this sermon presupposes one thing. And that is that we who are Christians are a people who have a king. And that our lives are caught up in something called the kingdom of God, which if we describe it simply as this. It's not a geographic place like most kingdoms, like the United Kingdom or the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. It's not a physical place so much as it's a state of reality in which Jesus Christ rules over a group of people in their hearts as a true and rightful king. Everything in the sermon can only make sense in light of this idea that we're not just people who have a belief system that binds us, but we're a people who have a king over us who binds us together in a new kingdom, a new kind of people that God is raising up in the world. Aren't you glad, and every other election cycle, you might feel differently about this, but as Americans, it's not a condition of being an American citizen that you have to love and revere the president of the United States. Some of us in this election cycle are very happy about that. Some of us are not. But the truth is, to be an American, you don't have to like the leader. But the truth is that you can't be a citizen of the kingdom of God without having a deep love and reverence for the king who calls us together to be a kingdom. I guess what I'm saying is, being a Christian is not as easy or simple as being an American. And that we can't just live here and be part of it. But in order to be part of the kingdom of God, somewhere in the depths of our hearts, we have to love and revere Jesus as the rightful king over our lives. And if we don't have that relationship with him, very little that you hear about at church will ever really make sense to you. So much of what we talk about and teach from this pulpit presupposes that we're not just free citizens trying to figure out what we want to do or believe. We are people who have a king. And perhaps there's no area of life where this invisible kingdom of God, the rule of Jesus Christ, clashes more with the flesh and blood, earthy stuff of our lives than this area of human sexuality. In fact, almost everything else, we can reduce it to things we do or things we like or dislike, but our sexuality feels very much to us at the root of who we are. And it begins even with something as fundamental as gender and how we understand our gender to be. But it goes beyond that to say that when we talk about sex, we're not just talking about an activity, we're talking about something that arises out of the core of who we are. That's why... The drive for sex, the curiosity about sex, the need for sex, the hunger for it, is so much more visceral, so much more powerful than anything. I've known people who really like food, but if they have to, they can put aside thoughts of food for some time. But it's interesting, this issue of sex, it has a pull over the human heart. And C.S. Lewis made fun of it. He said, uh, in a very uncharacteristic C.S. Lewis quote, he said something like, it's amazing that um, you can pull an entire audience together to watch a woman undress, and they will pay good money to watch that. It speaks to the depth, the essence of this need, whereas you couldn't draw the same audience together. Despite our love of food, you couldn't slowly un- unveil a dish, and there is a pot roast and get an audience to pay to see that. Because though we all recognize that we have lots of drives and hungers, this drive for sex 
is fundamentally different. And we know it. So as Jesus starts his sermon, one of the earliest topics he addresses is this issue of sexual purity. Let me read these verses with you. Here's what the word of God says. You have heard it said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. I'll confess to you that I have a huge challenge with this message, partly because by the time I finished writing it, um, I had like 12 pages of notes. And on a typical Sunday, I can only pull off five pages on the upside. So I had to cut out a bunch of stuff because there's just so much to be said on this topic. And I had to pick and choose. And so there may be things that you see in this text that you're like, why didn't he talk about that? That's why. I had to make some editorial choices here. And I tried to address what I thought was truly important for our church and for our culture. One of the first things we want to acknowledge here that Jesus is saying is sexual purity is ultimately a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. Even though sex seems to us to be all about the physical body, issues of sexuality and purity or impurity of sex arises out of, it begins as a matter of the heart. Jesus very clearly acknowledges a centuries-old moral truth that very few people would argue against, that adultery is a morally bad thing. And I think very few non-crazy people would say it's a great thing to have sex outside your marriage or to have sex with people who are already in a marriage and to cause them to break their covenant, very few people would argue that's a good thing. I was comforted as I was doing some research that I found a 2012 report out of the National Opinion Research Center at the University of Chicago, just, just you know, one, one town over here. And they said in 2012 that after a thorough survey of public opinion on the area of sex and morality... of Americans still believe firmly that marriage outside of sex, of extramarital sex, if you're married and you have sex outside of that, is always wrong in every situation. So that's comforting. That at at nearly 81% of married people in America still believe it's not okay to have sex outside of your marriage. And I think we can also be thankful that the vast majority of married people actually don't have an affair outside of their marriage. And yet, we should not rest on that and say, see, there you are. Most of us agree with God. Next subject. Because Jesus then does what he's doing this whole sermon. He does a shocking expansion of this truth. And he says, but hold on. Even if you never consummate in a physical affair, if you so much as look at another person with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery. It's no longer whether you're guilty or innocent of adultery. It's now a matter of degrees. In the same way that murder and its seed is found in a heart filled with anger and hatred, the seeds of the act of adultery are found in a heart that is filled with lustful and inappropriate sexual desire. And by inappropriate, what we mean is 
that desire outside of what God has said he designed sex for, that outside of that design and that context, he says it is a dangerous thing to play around with. And the seeds of violation of covenant exist in a heart that lusts without control. There's this strong current in our culture to diminish the significance of sex. To just make it something that's like in the body, it's not a big deal. That you can have casual sex. I think that is the greatest lie perpetrated in American culture is this idea there's such a thing as casual sex. That's like saying, oh, it's just casual murder. We, we weren't actually hating the person. We just killed them to see what it would feel like. There's no such thing as casual sex. God has given some things in this world that are so profoundly affecting of the human being that they can never be touched or, or participated in casually. Sex touches the core of who we are. And as a result, there is nothing casual about it ever. And if you bought the lie that there is, it probably explains why when it comes to the area of sexuality, you may have some really weird things going on deep in your spirit in that area. The desire to diminish sex is so that it stays bound in an area we can control and we could wave it off and say, it's no big deal. In fact, some people who commit adultery try to defend what they've done or justify it by saying, it was only sex. It didn't mean anything to me. They didn't mean anything to me. If you're the cheated on spouse, do you find really, oh, thank goodness it was only sex. Whew, I thought maybe you played Monopoly together or something. Just sex, I'm glad that's all it was. Do you understand that we don't need to belabor this point? You have to be completely suspending of any reality or common sense to argue that sex doesn't touch the heart of us. The reason we love it so much is that it touches more than just the body. Think about how carefully you guard your nudity. I remember there was an age where each one of my four children started closing the door to change. Before that, they were just like college kids on spring break. Ah, look at me. And then one day they just went, oh, you know, I'm embarrassed. I don't want everyone to see me, especially my siblings. No way. And they shut the door. I'm like, you see, we don't need to belabor the point that we understand sexuality is something beyond anything else. Maybe I don't want you to know that I like the color pink or that I enjoy romantic comedies, but I just outed myself on both fronts. But I'm not going to let you see my body because that's a whole other category of thing. Think about how offended you'd be if a stranger just walked up to you and kissed you on the mouth. (laughs) Hey, whoa, whoa. That's not a normal thing because that kind of contact we all instinctively understand is something deeper than just a handshake or a hug. I remember the first time I went to Europe, and uh, in Spain, I guess the tradition, of course, is a double kiss on each cheek, and I didn't, I'm not used to that, and this woman tried to meet me, and she, and I'm like, what is she doing? And I didn't, so I, I kind of like did this awkward thing, and we, I bashed her cheekbone against my cheekbone, hurt her, she went, ow! And I'm like, you know, it's just one of those things that I realize any kind of physical touch it touches at a different place. That's why whenever someone violates us or damages us, it will leave a mark, but we can recover from most damage. If someone punches me in the face, after a day or two, I'm going to get over it. I'll recover. If someone 
cheats me out of a large sum of money, it's going to be, I'll be salty for a long time, but eventually I will move on. But if someone violates me sexually, that's going to leave a mark unlike any other kind of violation. Because it has touched me at a place that is way deeper than anything else a person could do to me. And for some in this room, we all know, right? Like we have secrets that we hold that have damaged us. That's not a hypothetical illustration for some of us. For some of us, it's something real. It's in our memory. It's in our identity, our our childhood memories. And that kind of violation and damage doesn't just go away with a wave of the hand. Oh, don't worry about it. That was just your body that they violated. It was more than my body that was damaged in that affair. Even as our culture is trying to diminish the significance of sex, God's word reveals to us something profound. And here's what he says. That just as a man leaves his mother and father, his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one, this is a great mystery, but listen, it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. In other words, what Paul is saying is if he had to think of the most deep bond between any two beings in this whole universe, the deepest bond he can imagine is the way that God feels for his own people. There is no connection, no intimacy, no depth of love that exceeds that that we can understand. And he says the reason God gave us the gift of sex is that at some experiential level, we would begin to understand and experience the depth of closeness that God wants to have with us. The pastor who officiated my wedding preached from this text and made a big deal out of it. I'm like, what is he talking about? The reason God gave you sex is so that you understand his heart for you. I'm like, did I do something to offend you? Why are you talking about sex at my wedding? And I realized now how true his words were. That the reason God gave us sex is that we experience more than just physical pleasure, but the depth of somebody wanting to give themselves to us with joy and generosity. Because this is the true purpose of sex, beyond the many other fringe benefits, we can never talk about sex in, sex in casual terms. So if sex and purity and impurity regarding sex are matters of the heart, and many of us have already picked up damage or scars or regrets in this area of our lives, what can we do now to deal with this issue of sexual purity at the level of the heart? And I'll give you a couple recommendations. The first is to find freedom in confession. When I was in seventh grade, um, Nike kind of had just become a new company in the early 70s, and they were really expensive back then as they still are today. Good Lord, why do shoes have to cost so much? And why do teenagers have to like them so much? But I remember my parents splurged, and they bought me my first pair of Nike Cortez white with black swoosh. It was what everybody was wearing that year. And it was that blinding kind of white. You know that, like, it's just like, dude, turn it off. When the sunshine hit those shoes just right, it was, um, and I remember walking around like I was John Travolta on Saturday night, you know, know? and I was thinking about wearing my new Stan Smith today just to show you what white shoes look like, but I remember one day my friend Scott, he he was until that moment my best friend, he stepped on my shoe and left his big muddy footprint. Now, we ran right away to the bathroom. We scrubbed it out with wet paper towels, and we got most of the stain out. But in my heart, 
though the visible stain was pretty much gone, I could still see the stain in my heart. You know what I mean? Like, those shoes were so clean, and this dummy just stepped on them. And though we had the visible stain mostly gone, I still could feel the stain on my shoe. That day, in that moment, my new shoes stopped feeling new. And an interesting thing happened to me after that. I stopped protecting them so much after that. After that, when people like accidentally stumped, I'm like, don't worry about it. They're already kind of dirty. Because a stain had already touched it, and because I felt the weight of that lingering stain, I stopped caring about every new stain I picked up. Within a very short time, my brand new Nike Cortezes looked pretty raggedy. I think that's the way a lot of people who have experienced sexual sin or sexual violation start to feel about their own hearts. And they live in the bondage of feeling like not just their acts, but they themselves are damaged and stained merchandise. That this has touched and created a stain at a level that they don't know how to fix or clean up. And so they stop caring, they stop trying to pretend they can be clean, and they give themselves over to even more and more damage, even more and more stain. And the good news of the gospel of King Jesus is that we don't have to live in that place of shame and defeat and regret and guilt. The word of God is extremely clear that if we confess our sins even if we confess the sins done against us and the wounds they have opened, God is faithful and he will wipe it away. I love the words of the prophet Isaiah. Come now, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, I will make them as white as wool. I want you to know that if you have picked up a stain and though everyone says you're fine and you have moved on physically, but you feel the weight of that stain on you, there is a way to freedom and it begins by standing before Jesus in honesty and saying, please clean me. I want to be free of this. I want those white shoes to be new again. I hate the way I feel, and I don't want to look at myself as damaged, as worthless, as a violator or the violated. I have an identity that is greater than that. You can give it to me. I'm only going to get it from Jesus. And the great and unbelievable news is that he will touch you at a place that no one else can, and he will repair what you believed for so long was not repairable. In James 5.16, Jesus' brother, by the, by the way, his name is James, who wrote this letter, he also gives us another radical idea, and that is we can also find freedom in confessing to one another. I'm not talking about me sitting in a booth with a curtain and you telling me stuff. I'm talking about actually walking up to someone and saying, listen, sexual sin is a matter of the heart, and I've got a secret that I'm carrying around in in here, and I don't want it to be my secret anymore. I need for you to know that I'm wrestling with this, that I'm carrying this around with me, and I feel like if I let that out and let you see, something powerful will happen. And that's the promise of Scripture, that when we confess to one another, 
something powerful does happen. Two important things especially happen. One is we get rid of this stupid illusion that the church is filled with perfect, sinless people. I think that's one of the dumbest lies that we can believe is that you come to church, and especially this church, in the suburbs, staunchly middle class, and everyone pulls up in a, a freshly washed car, and you go, oh, man, I'm uncomfortable because I'm a mess, but everyone at this church looks so well put together. Just come meet with me, and I'll tell you, I've looked under the rug in everyone's house. None of us are okay. Can I just tell you that as a truth? All these people sitting next to you that look so perfect and middle class and suburban and polished and all that, they're a mess just like you. I'm not trying to break a confidence. I'm saying I'm a mess too. I've got junk in my private life just like you do. And it's when we confess that we get rid of the stupid illusion that the church is put together with Kens and Barbies. Bless you, brother. Oh, you know, I was praying the other day and I was feeling guilty because I wasn't praying hard enough. And I just, would you pray for me that I pray even harder than I'm already praying? And you're like, I can't be here. That's not at all my struggle. (laughs) Are you from another planet? And when we confess, something powerful happens and we break that illusion and we get to see each other. Just like Neo slipping out of the matrix. Another important thing happens, and that is that we begin the fight against sin properly by opening the windows, drawing back the curtains, and letting light shine in the darkness. I I can't say it better than Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it in his wonderful book, Life Together. So let me read you an excerpt from this book. Here's what he said. He who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. In confession, the breakthrough to community takes place. We talk a lot about community. How does community form? It doesn't form from a uniting hands in a common cause, doing good together. It first begins with us confessing that we are all imperfect and in need of saving. Sin demands to have a man by himself. And by the way, please forgive me. These things were written in an era where the generic pronoun was male, masculine. So it's not just men who should be listening. It's everyone. Sin seeks to have a man alone by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him, and the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. In confession, the light of the gospel breaks into darkness and seclusion of the heart. Since the confession of sin is made in the presence of a Christian brother, the last stronghold of self-justification is abandoned. The sinner surrenders. He gives up all his evil. He gives his heart to God, and he finds the forgiveness of all his sins. Where? In the fellowship of Jesus Christ and his brother or sister. The power of confessing to one another is not just that we, we shatter the illusion of perfection, but that we involve one another in the process of letting in light into the darkness that causes sin to fester like a mold and to grow and to isolate us. And have you noticed that when you're feeling bad and you're, you're behaving badly and you're saddled with guilt, your appetite for other people really decreases? You don't want to go to small group. You don't want to go to church. You don't want to be around people because you hate the way you feel about yourself when you look in the mirror. 
And what God teaches in his word is when you're feeling that way, the remedy is not to hide away and shun others. It is to run straight towards your community and say, I'm really having a problem right now. Help me. And since sex is a matter of the heart, another way to find freedom is in love. In love. The problem with sexual sin is it takes a fellow human being and reduces them to an image or an object or an opportunity through which I can get pleasure for myself. I don't actually love that person. I don't honor that person. I don't care what happens to them beyond this immediate use. They are for me in that moment just an object, an instrument, like a back scratcher or a fly swatter. I have a need. You look like you'll meet the bill. I'm going to use you. And then if you never see me again, I'm okay with that. It's why after one night stand, the first thing most people wanted to get out of my life in my bed. Don't act like we're connected. It was just a thing last night. I was drunk. I don't want to even look at your face right now. You remind me that in this area, something is messed up in my life. I have no real connection, no real intimacy. I just have orgasm. That's all I have. And so after violation, after sin, what happens? We feel it. That we've touched something designed for intimacy, but we haven't had intimacy. We haven't had any experience of love in that physical act, and it leaves us empty, hollow, damaged. We don't feel good about ourselves or anyone else. And if that's at the heart of sexual sin is the objectification, the using and exploitation of another human being as just an image or an object rather than a person, then one of the remedies to that level of sexual sin is to beg God to give us a heart like his that loves and values other people more. I know that sounds like a churchy thing to say, but let me break it down this way. I think it is impossible to have a God-driven love for my fellow human being and still use them for sexual pleasure and nothing more. I think it's impossible for me to have a true heart of love for another person and just look at a picture of them and use them for a moment and move on with my life. I think that's one of the worst parts of pornography is it turns human beings into pictures and says just use them without any dignity, any love, any concern or intimacy. And I think the the great moral problem with pornography is not just that it breaks the rules, but that diminishes the importance of human beings who God loves and values. There's a website out there called she's somebody's daughter.com. I love that URL. That's not just an image. It's not just a model. It's a human being whose life took a turn, probably not where she dreamt to be when she was six years old thinking about her future. There's brokenness there. And so I think it's important that we understand the remedy to sexual impurity is not just self-control, but it's growing in our hearts to love our fellow human being the way God calls us to love one another. Do you understand that? Pornography and sexual sin is a violation of the covenant we should have with our fellow man. And we need to beg God to give us a heart that loves people more than that. Not just loving people, But I think too often in the American church, we reduce worship to an issue of the heart and the mind and the soul and forget 
as Paul reminded the Romans, that we also worship and love God with our bodies. I think a lot of the things that we struggle with in the body, fitness, health, weight, addictions, substance abuse, all these physical body issues that we struggle with, we frame them as self-control issues, don't we? Come on, buddy. Just hit the gym. Watch what you eat. Stop using that thing. But it's not just a battle of self-control. In the end, I think it's a battle of worship. I don't think the way to recover from addictions and struggles in the fleshly body is simply to have more willpower. It is ultimately to understand that this body was given to us not just to move through the world, but as an amazing, tangible form of worship to God. That when we turn it around and reframe sexual purity, not just as a moral self-control issue, but as an issue of loving and worshiping and giving honor to God himself, something profound happens in our hearts. And I know that most of us as parents are uncomfortable talking to our kids about these things. But if we teach our kids anything about sex, it's this. That it arises from a body God gave us that is meant to be used to worship him. And everything we do with this flesh and blood is either an expression of honor to God or dishonor to God. And the more we think about rooting this issue of sexual purity to our love for a God that saved us, a king who has rescued us, the more victory we're actually going to experience in this area of our lives. I think the reason a lot of young people are in such bondage to pornography. And if, if you're wondering about it, do you know that the American Psychiatric uh, Psych- Psychological Association, is that the right word? APA. They've established already now that the first use of pornography among Americans is age 11 for boys and 12 for girls. So let's get over this idea that I've got to cover little Billy's ears or cover his eyes when he sees a swimsuit ad. I'm telling you folks right now that even if you don't give your kids a phone, unless you confiscate every phone in your town and your school, that ship has sailed. You are burying your head in the ground and pretending blah, 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 blah. It's not. It's all out there. The exposure is done. What we need is not to block and avoid, but to reframe and to tell young people that sex is not just physical. It arises out of love. And it begins with a love for God. That's why I align my life sexually with the authority of King Jesus, because he loved me more than anyone's ever loved me. I need to pick up the pace a little. So let me give you a a second area, and, and then we'll wrap up with this. And that's that sexual purity, though it's primarily an issue of the heart, is also unavoidably a matter of the body. In the area of sexuality, the invisible spiritual kingdom of Jesus Christ has a head-on collision with the flesh and blood kingdom of this world and with our own lives. So even though it's primarily a matter of the heart, there is also a level at which the fight must be prosecuted in our physical body. That's why we can get the most freedom by starting with the heart issue and confessing to God and to one another, and reaffirming our love for one another and for God himself. There's freedom in that at the heart level, 
but there also has to be freedom at the physical level. And Jesus gives what I think is really one of the most shocking things he says in Scripture. This should shock us. This is crazy talk. But he's being hyperbolic. He's exaggerating to make a very important point. He says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. Oh, okay. (laughs) That's simple enough. And if your right hand causes you to sin, just cut it off. Theologians have debated for centuries whether Jesus meant this literally and that we could fix society's problems by actually doing what he's saying. I think that's dumb. (laughs) And maybe if you believe the other way, we could argue about it. Because, let's face it, if I pluck out my right eye, I'm going to still ogle you with my left. Okay? That's just the way it is. I think the movie Fugitive proved to us that even a one-armed man can do great evil. The point is not that literally by cutting off these offending organs and appendages, you're going to fix that problem. But what he's trying to say is simply this. We have to take sexual sin very seriously. It's not a thing to be passive and casual about. Because it's one of those areas of sin that if we don't nip it early, it's going to start to dominate our being. It's going to start affecting the way we feel about God and our brothers and sisters in Christ. It can ultimately lead a person to hell, meaning it can cause you to reframe entirely at the basic level who God is going to be to me. Because if you say this and I don't want to do this, you're not the boss of me anymore. I don't need to be in this kingdom. I don't need to acknowledge your kingship. I choose me. I choose me. That's where it leads. If we don't bring the area of sexuality under the authority of Jesus... The consequences, according to Jesus, are devastating. And that's why the the main message in this exaggerated teaching, this remedy, is take it seriously. And there's two ways that we understand taking that seriously. First is deal quickly with it. Don't let it linger. When you sense that something is not right, for example, when you see a, a, a beautiful person and you go, wow, that person's smoking. That's just a statement that you have 20-20 vision. Oh, I, I see you. Ooh, you're looking good. That's, that's just a normal observation, an affirmation that beauty exists in the world. It's when after they pass you, you're like, hold up. <laughs> you take out that phone, you save that for later. That's the problem. It's not just that you have a, a reaction, a response to something, a thought about something. It's that you take it and you put it in your pocket, and you dwell on it, and you grow it, you water it, you fertilize it, you whisper to it. I love the way Martin Luther said it. You cannot keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. And he was talking about sexual purity. He's saying, I can't help that I have a response when I see something, or when I'm in a situation that really affects me sexually, But I have control over how long that guest stays in my house. That I have control over. And so I think it's important that we have this, this, develop this basic habit of redirecting our eyes, of looking away, of dealing quickly with the rising sense that I'm about to enter a, a, a red zone with respect to sex. That I'm feeling very strongly For example, that uh, I want to keep engaging in this friendship because it's titillating. Because it's more than just a person uh, um, that I'm attracted to at a human level, but it's starting to become something else. 
And I need to draw a boundary there. And that leads us to a second quick thing, which is when you sense it, and you, a, a way to take sexual sin seriously is not just to respond quickly to it, but to deal decisively with it. You can't get more decisive than plucking out your eye or cutting off your hand. It's not meant to be taken literally, but it is meant to be understood correctly that what God is saying to us is when you see this rising in your life, you can't take half measures to do battle against it. When I was just out of college, some of you know I worked as a surgical technician, and one day I looked at the roster for for the OR, and I saw that I was going to be assisting in a procedure called an orchiectomy. Medical people, how many of you know what an orchiectomy is? I didn't, so I had to ask, and I was like... (gasps) And they wheeled in this strapping 26-year-old, 6'4", picture of health. He's a youth pastor. And he's getting orchiectomy, and the doctor says, yeah, that's when we cut, that's when we snip off and remove a testicle. He's getting his right testicle. I was, as a man, I'm like, oh, he looks so healthy. Why are we doing this to him? And here's what the doctor said. Testicular cancer is probably one of the most survivable and treatable forms of cancer, but it's also one of the fastest developing. If you catch it early enough, the person can be saved. And right now, the success rate is 95% of men diagnosed and treated properly will survive testicular cancer. That's good news. But here's the drastic cost. If there's even a suspicion, a hint that the testicle has cancer, the way to figure that out is to cut it off. At least this was the case in 1995 or 1991 when I was working there. Maybe things have progressed since then, but you cut it out and then you put it on the table and a pathologist comes up, cuts it open. He says, yes, there's cancer or, oh, that was perfectly healthy. Oh, well. And I'm like, that's ridiculous. It's too much. That's so drastic. How can you? But what I realize is it it begs a simple question. What would you give up to save the whole body? I mean, I'm a man. I don't want to lose either one of those guys for any reason. But if it's an issue of maybe my whole life, see you later. It was nice knowing you. If you're on a leaky boat weighed down by gold bullion and you're going to drown, wouldn't you throw those bricks of gold overboard? I mean, at some point, we've just got to say, what is really at stake here and how seriously am I taking it? Do you know how many people have come to me in tears and said, Pastor, I am hopelessly addicted to porn. I don't know what to do. And I just go, well, where are you looking at it? It's not at the drugstore in a magazine anymore. It's, it's my computer. I got a simple solution. Get rid of it. It's usually college students I'm having these conversations with when I travel to preach. And they're like, wait, what? Yeah, just get rid of it. That's where you're seeing it. Just get rid of it. Yeah, but you don't understand. I need it to take sermon notes, and I stream the Christian radio station through it, and, you know, I'll shrink in my faith if I... Come on. If that's the primary conduit with which this stumbling block is entering your life, are you willing to get rid of it? For most of us now, it's not even a, a computer anymore. You can pull it right out of your pocket. If your smartphone causes you to sin, are you willing to pluck it out? I checked last night, and as of last night, Verizon still offers seven dumb phones. These are phones that offensively only do one thing. It lets you actually talk to another human being. What kind of nonsense is that? Guess what you can't do in a lot of these? You can't have a satisfying session of pornography on a flip phone. 
question is not whether this is what's causing you to stumble, but how seriously do you really want to deal with this issue? Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that you're getting rid of your phone will fix the whole issue. It's just one level of the fight. You're clean not because you scrub yourself, but because Jesus has made you clean with what he's done. But it didn't come without cost for him, and we don't take advantage of it. Even if my friend owns a car wash and promises me free car washes, I'm not going to go driving through mud every chance I get. Even though I know I can clean my shoes, if I walk through a field of poop, I'm still going to watch where I step because what we're saying is I know that my ultimate cleanliness and purity comes from Jesus. But I'm going to pick up a lot of junk on my shoes if I'm not careful where I step. And it's a two-pronged fight. Jesus has won the fight. He's done the hard part. But we still have to take it seriously and do our part to signal to him that we're not abusing his grace, but we're receiving it gratefully. And for some of us, it has become such a problem that the only solution for us is one of those phones. Now, don't go judging every guy who pulls out a flip phone in the next year and be like, ah, I know, I know. Don't do that. Why would you do that? Maybe there's just on a tight budget. But how serious are you about dealing with this? Really? How serious are you? He's not saying move from unfiltered cigarettes to menthol lights. He's saying give it up. Get it out of you. Be decisive in the way you deal with it. Let me finish. Uh, As a praise team, you guys can make your way back up here. Let me just finish with saying this. I acknowledge something important that I feel like I have to acknowledge. And that is that some of us here hearing this message don't disagree with Jesus on his standard for sexual purity. We understand and acknowledge that he has the right as king over this kingdom to define what purity means in his kingdom. And we don't even disagree in principle with that picture, but the problem is that the situation of our lives makes it hard for us to align with that standard. That we're living under some constraints that make it really challenging to honor the Lord sexually. For example, some people find themselves in a marriage so torn apart by conflict that they are now living with someone who they can legitimately have sexual relations with, but that partner is uninterested and unwilling. And that's a pain because you live in the same house with someone whom God has raised up for this purpose, but neither one of you is interested or finds a pathway forward. And so these needs still remain, but the opportunity is cut off. You say, how am I supposed to do this? Why has God handicapped me so much? Why do I have to live under this constraint? And I feel for you. I understand, really, what that must feel like. But if your answer is to take a shortcut, a surrogate, and to say, I will look at an image and I will exploit another person because this need has to be satisfied, in the moment you might be able to move forward. But let me tell you, in your heart, you are putting another brick of numbness on the wall between you and your spouse. Let the need, the hunger, the drive for intimacy push you toward your spouse and toward a renewal of your commitment to fight for your marriage. Don't turn to some other cheap substitute. Have a physical experience and think that is helping you in any way. It is really destroying your marriage. And it's not just religious people saying it now. Secular psychologists and therapists are alarmed at the social cost of these things. 
I'm urging you in the constraint of a marriage where this is not a good area for you to let that hunger drive you towards your mate to say, I want to restore the real love that exists between us. I want to get back to a place where we can do and enjoy this together the way God intended it. Not with this pain and regret. Maybe you're single and you'd like to have someone, but you're just God hasn't raised that person up. Or maybe you're just finding that you're too young for marriage, but your sexual curiosity and your appetite has reported for duty. That happens typically to boys way long before it happens to girls, but today it's just everywhere. And maybe what you're saying is, I know this is God's standard, but I feel things in my body. And there's pressure all around me in my school and in my community. And it's so hard for me to control this drive. I just feel it so keenly in my body. What do I do? Here's what I say to you. I know that fight's going to be hard for you. It's going to be really hard. But it's worth fighting. And understand this. In this season of your life right now, you don't need to learn about sex. Sex is easy. Even insects know how to do it. You don't have to study it or get good at it or any of it. It will teach itself when the time is right. What you need to learn is the harder part, which is how to love another human being. Sex is easy. Love is very difficult. Anyone can have sex. But to love another person for the rest of your life, that's something you've got to grow in and learn. And you learn, you start that by learning with your family and your friends how to really love another human being. How to be unselfish, sacrificial, forgiving, gracious, kind, patient. That's what love is built on for a lifetime. And when you're single, when you're too young for marriage and you still feel these things sexually, that's what I say to you is use that constraint to realize God is teaching you to love people. That other stuff will come later. But embrace the constraint you're under and learn to love. That's the much harder thing. I'm looking right at youth group right now just because I know the pressures you guys are under. You're growing up in a world that is completely different than the world I grew up in. But I am begging you to receive from God an invitation. To hold fast to a standard and to learn to love before you learn about sex. Use this time. Embrace it as a gift. We don't fight in order to be pure and acceptable to God. We fight because He has made us pure. He has done the lion's share of the fighting. Now let's join Him in that fight. Let's hold in high regard how powerful and important it is that we be sexually pure so that in His hands we could be a transformed people, a new kind of humanity, a kingdom for God in this world that can have a voice and make a difference. Let's pray together. I'm going to just give you a minute wherever this has left you to just respond to God in your own voice just for a moment. If you need to make a confession or a commitment, do that right now and then we'll sing a song and then I'll close this up. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.